there's a Pali word, samvega, and it means spiritual urgency. So the talk is about spiritual urgency. Uh, the traditional um, story that's told in relationship to spiritual urgency is um, a story about the Buddha to be. So actually, even before he was born, it was said that um, there was like a prophecy that he would um, either become a great spiritual leader or a great political leader a great king and his father was a king and wanted him to follow in his footsteps and did not want him to become uh, a a spiritual leader Uh, so um, his way of trying to prevent the possibility of his son becoming a spiritual leader is he created three different palaces uh, for winter, rains, spring, summer, the the rains, winter, uh, same season, but then the spring and the summer, so that um, his his son would never experience anything too unpleasant with nature. And then he also, in the grounds of the palaces, he... Uh, erased any sign of somebody old, uh, somebody sick or diseased, or somebody dead. So he also um, was trying to prevent the Buddha to be from seeing anything that might uh, have some spiritual urgency arise. Um, so this went on for quite a while, and then he. Um, got older and um, I think you can imagine there was a point where he just really wanted to leave the palace <laughs> you know like he, he wanted to see something beyond what he was restricted to and even though it was wonderful he had this um, urge to go on out beyond it and so he said he was going to go out to town you know whatever that means at that point in time um, but he uh, and at that point there were chariots, so him and his charioteer went out. Um, but his father had already even erased anything that would be a sign of something old or diseased or sick or dead on the route to town. Uh, but it said that a deva, <coughs> or a guardian <coughs> angel spirit, um, conjured up uh, the image the first time he went out of somebody old. And it was so shocking uh, to the Buddha to be that he had the charioteer stop and he said, What is that? And then the charioteer said, Oh, that's somebody old. And then he said, "Um, Is this going to happen to me? And the charioteer said, Yes. And then he said, Is this going to happen to everybody I know? And the charioteer said yes. And he was so um, deeply upset that he went back to the palace. And then, of course, he got that urge again, which is this 
known as the spiritual urgency, this kind of wanting to know more than what you know um, and feeling there's something you're missing. Uh, and he, each time, the second time, the deva conjured up somebody uh, sick. And again, the question, what is that? Is it going to happen to me? Is it going to happen to everybody I know? So there was somebody old, then somebody sick and diseased, somebody um, dead. Each time he couldn't go on, he'd go back. And the fourth time he went out, uh, it said he uh, saw a renunciate. And the um, translation in this part is very beautiful. It said that he saw someone more peaceful than peace itself. Someone more peaceful than peace itself. Um, and this is when he saw something that he felt like, oh, <laughs> this, there's something peaceful here that I don't, uh, I, I want, right? I want that there's that healthy uh, urge for peace and liberation. Uh, so he left and on the spiritual journey. I had, a, um, I think, an unusual karma in that my mom drank two fifths of whiskey a day when I was in the womb. Never mind chain smoking. Um, that's like a minor detail. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was born dead. And she was pronounced dead when I was born. We were both dead when I was born. Um, and she continued to drink that way, two fists of whiskey a day until she died. Uh, and um, my mother didn't talk with me much, but when she was drunk, uh, she would sometimes talk. And the, uh, her most positive thing that in her life was actually dying at my birth. Interesting, huh? So when she she would be drunk, but she'd say, "Oh, I saw all this. These I heard all these angels singing, and I saw all this light, and it was so powerful for her. That's all she wanted, you know. And it, I know it's an unusual karma, um, but it was also very um, hmm. It wasn't like my mom was like all the other mothers." who were trying to pretend that everything's okay. That's like an understatement. She was not <laughs> pretending everything was okay. She was not reading Ladies Home Journal. <laughs> and the big event was like, I'd go to the liquor store with her every day, and I'd get two lollipops because she drank two fists of whiskey a day. So that was, to me, that was great, right? Like, you don't know when you're a kid it, that it isn't great. <laughs> it had its benefits. <laughs> so anyway, um, when she died, um, in my family, there was no acknowledgement even that she drank. Like it, there was, You couldn't talk about it. Um, and when she died, you weren't allowed to talk about it. 
and but we did go to the, we went off in his car. No one told us what we were doing. You know, my sisters and I, I was the youngest, um, and it was an Irish wake, but I didn't know what we were doing. And went in the front door, and um, I kind of wandered off to this room where the casket was, and it was open casket. Again, I had no idea. Um, what, what was going to happen when I walked up to it and um, it was so intense like because they put all this makeup on my mom and I didn't expect it and it was just like Ugh, you know it's just so horrible uh, and then I slowly decided I wanted to touch her and so I brought my hand up very slowly and finally, like, I wanted to say goodbye, right? And so I touched her, and, and she was cold. It was so cold. And it was like I'd been given this um, total electric shock. Like, it was like, for my life, it was so powerful. And it was, when I read this story about the Buddha to be, it was the exact same thing that went through my head. Exactly. It was like, oh, it, but it was like a knowing. It was like a knowing that it was going to happen to me. And it was a knowing that it was going to happen to everybody I knew. Um, and I just started searching, you know. I was very young, but it was like I wasn't like the other kids. That was the gift in it for me. Is this just, um, I wanted to um, understand why my mother liked that dying why she loved it so much. And I also wanted to understand, I sensed there's something deeper than life and death. At that moment, I knew it. I knew that too. So that was a very um, big gift that my mother gave me. One of the... um, there were different things I found. This was a. I was born in '51, so this was '64. Not a lot of uh, help out there at that point in time. Uh, but I found a book called um, "Black Elk Speaks," and it was about uh, Crazy Horse. And um, Crazy Horse, if you don't know, was of the Teton Sioux tribe. And he was born in 1845, killed in 1877, while under a flag of truce. And it's said that he was very shy and introspective and um, modest. And he didn't speak in the tribe. Like He didn't speak except to once in a while he would speak with young children. And... Um, when you know when they did their ceremonial dances, he didn't dance, uh, and he walked through the village. He hardly would notice anyone, but everyone loved him, and everyone would do anything he would say. Um, so Black Elk's father um, told him the story about him, about his vision. And he said that Crazy Horse, um, when he had went for his vision, dreamed and went into the world where there is nothing but the spirits of all things. That is the real world that is behind this one. 
And everything we see here is something like a shadow from that world. He was on his horse in that world, and the horse and himself on it, and the trees and the grass and the stones, and everything were made of spirit, and nothing was hard, and everything seemed to float. His horse was standing still there. I'll say that again. His horse was standing still there, and yet it danced around like a horse only made of shadow, and that is how he got his name. It doesn't mean that his horse was crazy or wild, but that in his vision, it danced around in that extraordinary way. (coughs) It was this vision that gave him his great power, for when he went into a fight, he had only to think of that world to be in it again. He had only to think of that world to be in it again, so that he could go through anything and not be hurt. Until he was killed at the soldier's town on White River, he was wounded only twice, one by accident and both times by someone of his own people when he was not expecting trouble or not thinking, never by an enemy. I found that incredibly inspiring. You know, like in terms of, you know, when I started searching, it was like that was like one of the first, um, like a, having a compass and you're lost, but you go, oh, that's, that's important. That he only had to think of that world and he was in it. That's amazing how, how, um, how much access he had to that. When I was growing up, um, whenever I would find a dead animal, um, I had a little graveyard for it, for them. And uh, these white pine trees here are the, the same kind of environment that I had the, the little graveyard. Uh, and um, there's something about white pines when the wind goes through them and in the autumn and all the needles. This is when I first found that place in the autumn. Um, and again, it was that feeling of um, how important death is as a um, protection and uh, keeping you awake, not complacent, and also um, wishing them well yeah, on their journey. And one time I, I read that Henry David Thoreau uh, said that white pines, the tree, the white pine, was the emblem emblem of his heart. It, it's such a powerful tree. I've seen a lot of you walking under under them, and I think it's important to know how um, powerful they are to be around. How important they are as guardians. The um, mindfulness definition, uh, soft readiness, is so important. We can't emphasize it enough that we'll have this idea that death is very far away, 
rather than knowing that it can happen any moment. And and it's that it's seen as a protection. This as it's also meditating on death is considered to be a guardian protection because of that. That it it's not meant to be morbid. It's meant to keep us awake to the the fact that anything can happen. I know when I first met um, one of the teachers that I spent many years with, Sayada Upandita. he was he was just totally into making you strong. Like the whole point is making you strong, making you strong. Like you know how by being connected with anything can happen. That that's the truth, and you know I just would he would always just laugh. Like uh, you know it would seem like he was so hard. Like it would seem like he was kind of you know almost torturing you. It was so hard, and yet. He would laugh and go, I'm just trying to make you strong. (laughs) In fact, to him, I really could say that um, he felt it was noble to die meditating. And I mean that in all the, um, the goodness of him. Not, you know, it's just like he thought that um, that that would be a noble effort. It's so deep. It's not meant to transform you into macho, macho meditator. It's much more, again, to get that sense that you have that protection. That you know that it's that important. There's a a poet named Galway Canal who died a few years ago, but it was nice to uh, live a life alongside someone, a poet that good. And um, from one of his... Poems at the end, he says, um, it's the tenth poem uh, in this book, and he said that uh, on the number ten, he said, now one and zero are walking off the page. And uh, he said, living brings you to death. There is no other road. Saira Upandita said, one should reflect on the fact that the whole world of beings is made up of nothing but mind and matter, which have arisen but do not stay. Mind and matter do not remain still for one single moment. They are in constant flux. Once we find ourselves in this body and mind, There is nothing we can do to prevent growth from taking place. When we are young, we like to grow. But when we are old, we are stuck in an irreversible process of decline. Nature cannot be deceived. We cannot escape old age and death. This is the main weakness of beings. Beings are devoid of security. There is no safe refuge from old age, disease, and death. 
Look at other beings, look at animals, and most of all, look at yourself. There is no security. Perhaps reflecting on the precariousness of life will cause some urgency to arise in you and give you a strong impulse to practice. Vipassana meditation can lead to a place beyond these things. There is a... um, I felt a very, very deep, great fortune to have met Nya Tang Seidao toward the end of my um, practice life. Um, I don't mean I don't practice, but um, had one more question, and he answered it. Uh, that was what I mean. Uh, so that end of the search. And um, he was he he was truly the happiest human being I've ever met. And you know we we might find it a bit of a grind to get through a day of practice, but it's like the idea is that it's making us more peaceful, more happy, right? That's what I you know Upandita as tough as it was, he'd be laughing. It's like well, I'm just trying to make you strong, right? It's not like I'm trying to hurt you. So. You know, um, and he was so inspiring because, like, when he would make contact, when he would be sitting there and he'd make contact, he'd like lean over, he'd be totally there. But then, when he would finish his sentence, he would totally go back and just go into the unconditioned, you know, and it would be so um, moving to see that total engagement and that then that total peace and the total engagement and then the total peace and that the um, I don't remember exactly when I met him because I've gone there 21 years um, but it was toward maybe the last I don't know 12 years or something getting to know him uh, I asked him what his practice was now, and he died at 98, so he was probably 86 or something. And uh, that's, you see, he gets very animated, and he said, oh, I just do this one practice. And I said, what is it? You know, and he said, oh. <laughs> He's like, on the end breath, I say, um, I'm going to die. And on the out breath, I say, and everyone I know will die. And then there was that, then that deep peace and pause. And then he said, and you know what? I said, what? And he said, when I die, I'm not going to be surprised. Oh, it's so true, right? We just don't quite think it's going to happen to us. It's like that. um, And as he got older, it was amazing. You'd walk in to see him. And the last two years, um, he was like, I can't see, I can't hear, I can't walk. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha,
Meaning, when I go to where he, you know, where he uh, was living, there's still this extraordinary feeling. It always makes me cry. That the last few years, just going to visit where he was, you know, or where his um, did he get cremated? <laughs> his body. I can't remember. I don't think I, I think they just interred him. I think they just put his body there. Yeah, but it's it's just extraordinary. You know, the it's like he's still there, but it's not like this is where we have to get Ananta. We have the sense like, oh no, it's nothingness, but actually what's left. There's no greed, hatred and delusion. That's what's that's what goes. It's just um, important that we get that the qualities such as loving kindness or compassion or mindfulness or equanimity, these are all qualities that um, replace the greed, hatred, and delusion. There was a um, friend I used to visit, an older friend that in, uh, in her bathroom, there used to be a little saying that said, um, even the withered branch brings prosperity to the mountain. As you get older, you really appreciate that. <laughs> even the withered branch brings prosperity to the mountain. And we know, we go out into nature, and if there's it's like there's a, a love that's there, and there's so much life, yeah? There's so many beetles and woodpeckers and, you know, moss, and it's like, well, is there death? Yeah, these are important questions. The, what is death? What is life? Is there something deeper? And I mentioned this, but I think that it's always good to hear it again. Srinas Argadada Maharaj was a great teacher from India and he said um, it's like he was pleading with you begging you don't accuse me of being born pleading don't accuse me of dying that's like no identification with the body as being me or lying or I so nothing dies how could, it, how could anything be born there's no him me that gets born it's, and so this, this is what we practice for, this understanding. Um, it might be in one step or eating one bite or it's just like something shifts and we understand that this body couldn't possibly be ours. It's made up of food. <laughs> it's just food that comes out. <laughs> <laughs> but do we investigate it, right? Do we... Do we check it out? 
the great teacher Suzuki Roshi, um, who who wrote the book Beginner's Mind, Zen. It's he was a great Zen teacher. He um, had a lot of students more of my generation. He was much older when he came from Japan to California uh, to teach. He was one of the first Zen masters to come to America to teach. Um, and I think that his students, uh, when he got cancer and it was getting close to him dying, were looking forward to a last like profound something or other when he was just about to die. And so they were all around his bed, and uh, he was just about to die. And just just before he died, he said, I don't want to die. And he died. <laughs> and they were so disappointed. <laughs> it took them years to understand, you know? And to me... And that's like one of the most profound um, teachings I can imagine. Just, it's so honest. It's so utterly honest. And it's like, that's what we're doing. It's like, if you're really sad, you just are really sad. And if you're really happy, and if you're really bored, but it's not personal. It's not yours. If you're really angry or you whatever, it's like the trouble is, is that people believe it's theirs, and then they have to do something with it. Yeah? So it's like this is what we're learning, is to be fully connected and totally disidentified. Completely participated and completely non-attached to whatever's happening. That's a paradox. That's hard. We, we're willing to connect if it's ours. If we possess it, then we can control it. And so there's that thing like, well, I don't, well I'm not willing to connect if I can't control it. That's the whole dance that goes on. And then we, then we, then we miss a piece of life and we're afraid of it. Anything that, anything that you can't connect with and disidentify with, we're afraid of. It has great power over us. This is from <coughs> Michel de Montaigne. He was a, lived in 1533 to 1572, and uh, one of the more most maybe significant um, philosophers of the French Renaissance. He said, don't give death a second thought. If you don't know how to die, <coughs> don't worry. Nature will show you. <laughs> She'll do it beautifully. Mm-hmm. That's so heartening, yeah? Again, that sense of... Uh, It's like dropping the reins of the pony, right? And I, you know, how I grew up in the early 50s, you know, most people believed that animals didn't have feelings. And it was, it was, if you were a, like an open sensitive kid, it was like a nightmare. Um, and I, I have these three feral cats now around my house for 
almost eight years. And when I got home this last time from teaching and traveling, um, the, just after a day or two, I heard this very loud scream. And um, this, not one of what I call my feral cats, they're never yours, but one of the feral cats uh, that was uh, went under the house was actually not one of the three cats, and it died. It died under the house. And um, it was way under the house. It's one of those houses that you really don't want to crawl <laughs> under. You know, and I kept going, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this. But eventually, like, it's just so hard. You know, you're, if you just go up a little bit, it hits your head. And, you know, it's all the things the last owners left there that they didn't want to deal with. You know, you know that kind of place that you, know, you just don't want to go. And, oh, and... Um, the, the three feral cats that lived there, they were so upset. They they couldn't deal with it for weeks. They couldn't deal with it for weeks that this cat had died. You know, we have this idea that other beings don't feel, um, but they do. They really feel. One of the places I learned it the most uh, poignantly was... Um, I think I was around 21 or 22, but tried to rescue my sister's kids and family by homesteading in northern Maine. Um, and we, some of my friends were there, and each each person sort of took on a um, project. Or, but it was more not a project, but really something that would sustain us. So, um, you know, I had bees, <coughs> someone had ducks, someone had chickens, someone had a cow, and uh, two people had the cow because it took a lot of work to milk the cow. And then um, at, at some point, they had the cow get pregnant, and there was so much milk. And it was one of the great teachings of my life. I was trying to make cottage cheese, you know, you know whey, you know, drink the whey. Like, um, I was giving quiche to all the neighbors. So it, was, it was just like unbelievable amount of milk, and we couldn't keep up with it, so um, I actually didn't um, participate in the decision about the baby the baby cow, but um, at some point, after about a year, the people who were taking care of the cow decided to um, sell the baby cow, <clears throat> and they found a really good home for the baby, and none of us were from the farm, so we had no idea. We thought a year... <clears throat> all is okay. And this baby cow um, went off to this nice home, and the mother cow um, cried and cried and cried and cried, and it just never stopped crying for almost a year. And we were, I mean, it was almost like everyone wanted to go back to the city (laughs) or the suburbs. I'm not kidding. It was just so um, deep. So important again. So important that uh, I think that that's where I really got why the Buddha said the image of metta is, is with the cow, the mother with the baby cow. That that eye contact because I saw that that um, I witnessed day after day her connection, you know, with this baby. Powerful.
there's a um, flower <coughs> uh, called gentian, and it um, grows on the mountains, high mountains. And the higher the flower grows, the deeper the blue. Like it's the closer to the sky, the more deep the blue is. It's it's extraordinary flower, and it was one of um, D. H. Lawrence's, the great poet's favorite flowers. And he lived from 1885 to 1930. He died at 44. He was a born in England of a miner's son and. Um, I think brought a lot of um, attempt to get into his body and to help us get into our bodies. Not maybe in a 2018 way, but he was very um, radical for his time. And this was a poem he wrote just before he died. It's called Bavarian Gentians. Not every man has gentians in his house in soft September at slow, sad Michaelmas. Bavarian gentians, big and dark, only dark, darkening the daytime, torch-like, with the smoking blueness of Pluto's gloom, ribbed and torch-like with their blaze of darkness spread down, flattening into points, flattened under the sweep of white day, torch flower of the blue smoking darkness. Pluto's dark blue days. Black lamps from the halls of Dis, burning dark blue, giving off darkness, blue darkness, as Demeter's pale lamps give off light. Lead me then, lead me the way. Reach me a gentian, give me a torch. Let me guide myself with the blue forked torch of a flower down the darker and darker stairs where blue is darkened on blueness even when Persephone goes just now from the frosted September to the sightless realm where darkness is awake upon the dark and Persephone herself is but a voice or a darkness invisible enfolded in the deeper dark of the arms plutonic and pierced with the passion of dense gloom among the splendor of torches of darkness shedding darkness on the lost bride and her groom that's how he wanted to die Can you imagine depending on your favorite flower to be the light to lead you on that dying journey to death? It's like 
That's amazing. What will you do? The ultimate control we want is how we die. Isn't that interesting? Yeah? That it's like, <laughs> if we don't get it till the end, we, we finally will get, you can't control that. <laughs> it's like, it's amazing, right? So that's why we practice, that we're strong enough to, to die whatever way it happens. You can't control it. My mother-in-law, um, my ex-mother-in-law, um, had dementia pretty intensely for eight years before she died. She had it more like um, 13 years, but it got very intense by the time she hit 90 years old, and she died at 98. Um, and so it was like a gradual um, loss of her mind, but her body was healthy. And um, maybe the last five years that she was alive, uh, she didn't recognize me. And I was sharing with somebody here the other day that um, for some reason, when I would spend time with her, and of course I wanted her to recognize me, and, um, but uh, I was so happy <laughs> when I hung out with her. And it made no sense to me, and that's what was so wonderful. It was like inexplicable, just like hanging out with her. And uh, whenever I would leave, because she spent even the last maybe seven years just in, a, in her in the room we made for her at home, and um, it was intense, you know, that sense of um, I had that paradoxical feeling of really not liking that she lost her mind, and yet. I was happier when I was with her than when she had her mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was so odd. It's so odd. You know, it's like this teaching, you know. Um, and so when she uh, was about to die, I called my, my ex, Dave, and uh, my stepdaughter, and they flew there in time. And um, she started having this difficult labored breathing. And they freaked out, and they said, "Call the doctor and get 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 some medication for her." They didn't want her to suffer, so I called my friend doctor, and and she was like, "Michelle, she does not need any medication. She can do this." And I'm like, "Well, you're going to come here and <laughs> tell tell the band <laughs> they're not into this, you know?" And she's like, "No, I can't come, but you can do, you know, you can do this." So I'm like, "Well, okay, no medication." <laughs> and uh, and then for some amazing reason, she snapped out of the dementia. She didn't re ever recognize me, but she recognized Steve. She recognized Chandra, uh, her granddaughter. And um, she just locked in on Steve's eyes, and they breathed together for a few hours. Mm. 
And I was standing there, and I was like, wow, here he, he was at her, his daughter's birth, and uh, went through her labor as a birth, and here he was being with his mom, dying, and I was witnessing it as a birth. And it, I just, I, I just felt so unafraid. Like at that point, it was like, wow, I am witnessing a birth. Not a, it's like we call it death, but it, it felt just like I'd seen a birth. Uh, very moving. It was just like a labor, and she died like most of us want to, very peacefully. But people will say to me, oh, she had such a great death, and I'm like, she had nine years of hell. Mm. <laughs> this is, you know, we, we don't see the whole picture. Right? It's like, who knows? You know, and I think that um, my dad was the opposite. You know, and it, it, um, he spent two months at Mass General in Boston, and his body was so, it was so much pain. It was so hard um, to be there for that with him. And, um, at the end, uh, toward the end, when we decided to, uh, you know, you decide to just pull all the plugs, it's, it's time to go. Uh, but um, the nurse went against the doctor's orders. It, she asked permission, and she said, your dad needs to do this very slowly. And uh, so every day she, she just gave my dad a little bit of morphine and a little bit more... And it was the first time I ever saw my father relax. And uh, the first month uh, on my father's chart, it said hostile. And the second month, it said extremely hostile. <laughs> my father was so um, intense, you know, so angry. I've never seen him not anything but extremely hostile and so to watch my dad start to relax and realizing that he was really afraid not, you know, it was all just underneath all that rage was fear and um, then, you know, there was a great ending family thing, a very dramatic ending uh, with my, my sister's kind of drunken, crazy goodbye scene with the favorite, and then um, this is the this is the sweetest thing. My uh, my niece, the oldest niece, uh, she's she so believes in Jesus and so believes in the light, and uh, I've always encouraged that for her. She has a very deep connection with Jesus, and it's beautiful. And so she went up to uh, my father after. Uh, big drama and she started touching my dad, my dad's hand and she's like, don't worry grandpa and I'm like, oh no and she's like, don't worry grandpa just go toward the light and, and my dad was not that type like by any means and so she, she's like, don't worry grandpa and it was so sweet, it was like the most innocent sweet, don't worry grandpa it's like this little voice came out, don't worry, Grandpa, just go toward the light. Just go toward the light. And I'm like, ten, nine, <laughs> eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And my father just 
exploded. It was like it went. You know, everyone in Boston had to run away. Like it, was like, it was like I don't want to go toward the goddamn light. <laughs> to go through and for hours I stayed with him after he died and just tried to help him keep moving through and keep moving through and um, everybody dies differently and it's okay this is what we if it's like if there's any moment on the retreat where you think it isn't okay what if that's happening when you die and so this fourth heavenly messenger, someone more peaceful than peace itself. It's like this is so important. And it, it's um, in this practice, peace is unconditional acceptance without conditions. My first long retreat was in Wales. And Seventy-nine. It was a month, um, and it, it's a long story. But um, I was extremely allergic to everything in the building, and it was June, and I'd never traveled, and I thought June was going to be kind of warm, but it was Wales, and it was raining and freezing, and um, I was allergic to uh, being inside. So I was trying to find places to be outside. Uh, it was very difficult retreat. Um, I mean, we, we think that maybe sharing a room is hard, but we were just all in one room. All the women were in one small, small room, and all the men were in one small room. Those were the early days, you know. And uh, anyway, there were a lot of things that weren't going my way that retreat. And uh, about the end of the third week, the sun came out. <laughs> it was a long three weeks uh, outside and um, so I was so excited I was just like you know that, like a little kid just so excited <laughs> like, and I got my zafu and I brought the, one of the smelly blankets but just going to be outside and I put my zafu out on this little place and I was in the sun and I was so happy I was like ecstatic and I was like <laughs> and then it started to get hot. <laughs> and I started sweating. And I'm like, you know, whoa. And then um, these flies. <laughs> these flies were just starting to go. And I was like, wow. You know, um, it was so powerful, like that, that, like looking forward to something. Mm-hmm. And having such dukkha, such suffering for three weeks, and then thinking that I was going to have this um, relief. 
uh, and it was so short-lived. <laughs> it was amazing. And then I, 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 I accepted it. But it was like, it wasn't like I tried. It was like this seeing like, oh, there's no peace. There is no peace unless there's this deep acceptance. And I went into the teacher for my interview, and he was so happy for me. He was just like, that's peace. That's it. It's unconditional. It's without conditions, acceptance. And that, that's the fourth heavenly messenger is someone more peaceful than peace itself. You know, because it wakes us up to that possibility for ourselves. And, you know, it's, it's a... Um, in, this, in this practice, happy, the happiness is considered the happiness of peace. So it's not a rejection of the happiness of pleasure. But it, this is a particular kind of happiness, which is a, a kind of a deeper contentment. It's a, it's a quiet peace. And when um, I'm going to describe um, different experiences that can seem paradoxical. But um, the maturing of the human heart is when we understand that we can be impartial and relate to them equally. So, for example, um, deep or ordinary. With unconditional acceptance or equanimity, you relate to them equally. Or conceptual or non-conceptual, or ease of well-being and frantic. There's a, you see, there's a deep acceptance of frantic as well as ease. They're both equal from this place of peace. Or sleepy, awake, no struggle, fighting with what's happening. This is peace. Needing reassurance, being okay just as we are. You're, you're learning to allow for both experiences equally. Wanting more, longing, everything we need is already within us. See that you're not having to get rid of anything. That's people. Hating everything, hating everyone. Boundless metta. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you relate to them equally. What if you're dying in some nurse to something stupid, and just before you die, like you're having a version, and you don't accept that? Whoa! You you know we we want to control, trying to get rid of something, interest. You learn how to go. Oh, it's the trying to get rid of something space. Can I be with it? You see, that this is where we get all mixed up. We have this idea that the experience 
is what matters versus how we're relating to the experience. It's all how we relate to experience again and again and again, where this is all about control. It has nothing to do with peace. And it's violent, as Jesse said. We all talk about wanting peace. But are we willing to do what needs to be done? That's why Pandita said it's noble to die meditating, because this is hard, right? We want to pick and choose. Sick, healthy, effort, effortlessness. Goes on and on. Even when we're encouraging soft readiness, it's not ours. It's just soft readiness. If, if we're encouraging learning how to be vulnerable, and you feel vulnerable, and it starts to feel, ooh, it's like, it's not, it's not my vulnerability. It's just vulnerability. And when we're seeing, you know, it's just like, there's just the seeing. There's no seer. If we are aware. We relate to thinking, but there's no thinker. We're walking, but there's no walker. And when we understand that, then it's like there's ang- anger, but there's no one angry. There's peace, but there's no one who is peaceful. There's a knowing, but there's no knower. I had um, a time where um, for about a year and then some other times, I had the opportunity to take care of teachers like Deepama or Ajahn Chah, Tangpulu Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Sayadaw, I got to know Sayadaw Ulakana, but I had a great um, portion of taking care of a lot of these teachers uh, but I would say they were all very hard on me they, and Ajahn Chah used to tease me every time I'd bring in some food to him he would just tease me and I would be like inside I'd be like I don't think I can take this <laughs> <laughs> but it was like when I look back I feel wow he was just trying to help wake me up, right? It's like um, the old, the old ancient way was to tend to kind of jolt you. My mother's death and my birth was a jolt, uh, but it doesn't have to be macho. But there does have to be some way that we want to wake up. We want to be free. 
And it's uh, my mother played. Um, she would be up all night instead of during the day in the cellar. And, and one of the things she played a lot was Billie Holiday. And uh, there was a phrase I would hear a lot, which is, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Mm-hmm. And unconditional acceptance is that being willing to die. It's just, it's peace. It's like that the personal little self just goes, oh, yeah, I, I can't control this. It's okay. It's, it's that, it's the death of the personal self, uh, but it gives you everything. Not a bad price. So I'd like to do a little chant to end the sit. Um, it means all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. And Jesse, would you do it? So we'll do it, call and response. Anita Sankara Upato Vaya Damino Upato Vaya Damino Upagito Te-sam-upasamo-sukho Te sam upasamo suko. Te sam upasamo suko. Anicca wata sankara. Anicca wata sankara. Upadawaya damino. Upadawaya damino. Upagitwa nirujanti. Upagitwa nirujanti Te samu pasamu suko Te samu pasamu suko Suko is happy.
knocking and then when they touch it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.